Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Walkertown Report. We just passed the first anniversary of January 6th, the insurrection, and we are now worried about whether or not these are the last days of American democracy as we know it. And my guest on this uh, program is Rick Perlstein, who wrote this book called Reaganland, which has to deal with how Reagan got elected and some of the uh, trends that were happening around at the time, especially with American evangelicals, that led to Reagan's victory. And one of the things that uh, Rick Perlstein talks about in the book was a multimedia uh, show, basically, that Jerry Falwell had, where he was going to Christian schools, to churches, really to anyone, anywhere that would let him, uh, to put on this program where... You wouldn't call it dancing, but they did have a word for it. They called it stage movement, since Baptists don't dance. And there'd be singing, there'd be um, audio-visual demonstrations, and mainly you'd be seeing pictures of aborted fetuses, men kissing, uh, things designed to provoke a reaction in a 70s-era evangelical crowd. And it didn't take much. Now, in the 70s... I attended Trinity Christian Academy in Jacksonville, Florida. And Jerry Falwell's America, You're Too Young to Die actually came to my church in Christian school. And Rick Perlstein actually writes about this in the book, and we talk about this on the interview. However, one item that we did not discuss, and I realize that it's the invisible elephant in the room, is the fact that... Bob Gray, the founder of Trinity Christian Academy, who is dead no longer with us, was arrested for child molestation. And this was for a period covering over 30 years. He had over 30 victims. And I blogged about the incident uh, at the time when it was coming out, when uh, Gray had been caught, he had been arrested. And that's when I started my blog, Christian School Confidential, and started writing heavily about Christian school issues at the time. And, of course, one of the blogs that I wrote uh, caught the attention of Rick Perlstein, and that's how I wound up uh, getting in the book. But we didn't bring that up during the interview, and that was an oversight on my part. But before we begin the podcast with Rick Perlstein, I would like to drop a little thought bomb that how Trinity and other evangelical and Christian organizations have treated the abusers within their ranks, whether they're church pastors, youth directors, or work with their troubled teen centers or various Christian ministries. Whenever they turn a blind eye, they teach another generation how to turn a blind eye on their leaders when they do abusive things to other people and, unfortunately, the nation. And as we get to the end of the interview with Rick Perlstein, I do ask him, what can we the regular lay people do, to do what we need to, to preserve democracy for years to come. From fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada, you are listening to The Walkertown Report. Hello, and thank you for listening to The Walkertown Report. My name is Dwayne Walker, and my guest for this podcast is Rick Perlstein, the author of this book, Reaganland. And one of the things I found uh, fascinating about this is Rick actually 
looks back at an up, uh, at a certain segment in American history uh, that I actually I don't know if I want to call it a privilege necessarily, but I got to I got to actually witness, which was when uh, the when uh, the evangelical um, or the fundamentals at the time, uh, basically headed up by Jerry Falwell, decided that they would start throwing everything behind uh, Ronald Reagan. One of the first things they did was they got this, uh, what I describe as a dog and pony show, uh, called America, You're Too Young to Die. And they went to all these fundamentalist churches, Christian colleges, and wherever they could. And you would see slideshows of aborted fetuses, uh, men kissing, things like that. And... Um, and then, of course, you'd have some senators coming in talking about how they're concerned about the way America's going. And this is largely because Jerry Falwell made a major proclamation back when Martin Luther King was alive that Christians shouldn't get involved in politics. And now he was kind of changing his tune. And uh, anyway, I got to Rick Perlstein here. And uh, so, Rick, um, as far as with uh, something like America, you're too young to die, tell me, did Jerry Falwell really get, or not necessarily Falwell, but the conservative movement, did they really get a boost from things like that? Oh, I, I, I completely think that they got a boost because, as you point out, there was this tradition within the evangelical world of not getting involved in, you know, electoral politics, right? I mean, there was a theological, I forget which biblical verse it is, but, you know, you know, first of all, there's render unto Caesar and things that are Caesar's and unto God, things that, things that are God. But there's this line about how, you know, you should cast your eyes to the heavens and, you know, not this worldly, you know, kind of fallen place. And, you know, people in, in very fundamentalist areas would complain that people, Christian, you know, serious Christians, you know, but the kind of people who went to church a couple times a week wouldn't vote. You know, they were literally, uh, they were literally believed it was sinful, right? They were trying to retreat from the world. And, of course, what happens was the 60s and all these issues that seemed to be kind of a settled consensus about sexuality, mostly issues around the family, broadly understood, and sexuality, were suddenly political and all these liberation movements born in the 60s were kind of working their way, you know, inst into the institutions, you know, through you know, the attempt to enshrine the Equal Rights Amendment uh, through the gay rights movement, um, you know, through the feminist movement. And, um, you know, there was this basic, basically a moral panic. And one of the things, one, one of the kind of um, uh, axioms, uh, I think, about politics is you never really get major ideological changes in the direction of a democratic society unless you bring a new group into politics who weren't politicized before. You know, like when um, when um, in the 30s, when, you know, union members, which also were not particularly interested in electoral politics, you know, threw their lot in with Franklin Roosevelt, you know, that was what created this democratic dominance for decades. Because if you think about it, suddenly you have this new weight on the scale, shifting the balance of power. So if you have a bunch of people who didn't vote, suddenly becoming fanatical activists, right, who, who think that, you know, the right people getting elected is not only a matter of life and death, but of, you know, basically, um, 
whether <laughs> you know whether the civilization will survive or not survive or not because of course this kind of Christianity is very apocalyptic you have this new weight on the scales and you know just to take one example you know the equal rights amendment seemed to be gliding you know to acceptance you know it was only like three or four states to go i tell the story in the book and then suddenly in the late 70s you get all these evangelicals and also mormons deciding that you know whether you know god we win god's favor as a nation depends on this thing failing and um when, you know, the 1980 presidential election is coming around, first of all, all the Republican candidates, not just Reagan, you know, we're trying to win this new, we're all, we're all conservatives except for John Anderson, right? Uh, and they're all trying to win this new block. And at first, at first they like this guy named John Connolly, the former Texas governor. So the reason why these dog and pony shows were so important was that they were basically propaganda telling millions of Americans that we're, cha- we're, 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 we're changing the script, you know. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of theological, you know, kind of, um, you know, re- rationalizations of convenience that, you know, what the Bible said then is not what the Bible says now, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I'd like to read this, the, the excerpt, though, from, from your book, just a brief excerpt. Uh, sure, a brief please. Excerpt here. Uh, when, and this is, this is uh, again, uh, this is when I was at Trinity Christian Academy back in, um, I want to say like 77 or 78, and uh, he, being Jerry Powell, was back with his multimedia review at Trinity Christian Academy in Jacksonville, Florida. A teacher was so riled up after Falwell's preachments about the dangers of homosexuality that he told his class, in my day, we knew how to deal with faggots. We knocked a guy's head into the side of a fountain. He was bleeding like a squashed tomato. When a student complained to another teacher about this unchristlike utterance, the concern turned on him, not the teacher. Are you thinking of turning gay Dwayne? A gay person cannot be saved. That's you. That, yes, that, 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 would, that would have been me. Yes, I wrote about that in the book that's now out of print that I don't plan on bringing back again. Yeah, I mean, what I did was I probably Googled, you know, using my very sophisticated historical research techniques, I probably Googled Jerry Falwell, you're too young to die. And the blog post where you tell that story showed up. And I got in touch with you, and I just, you know, I don't want to put something, you know, some some random guy says on the internet, you know, right in there. But if I talk to that random guy on the phone, seems pretty legit, you know, he seems like yeah. a straight guy, and um, it really makes my point. I mean, it makes a, a very important point, by the way, about how conservative politics works. I, I say it's very Janice face, right? Conservatives never succeed politically unless they kind of rouse, you know, the ugliest demagogic energies of the population, but, you know, they have to kind of present themselves with respectability, right? And so, you know, you have Jerry Falwell, you know, very smooth-talking guy who could, you know, talk to, you know, David Brinkley on the NBC Nightly News, and then you got your teacher, and they're saying kind of the same thing in different ways. And that's actually a really lovely story encapsulating, you know, how this whole thing works that I've taken, you know, hundreds of pages to try and explain. What's, um... What I remember is how language was played with a lot. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear about that. Right, especially when it when it's when it's about women getting involved in politics. Yeah. Now, like for instance, if we were watching, say, Jane Fonda back then getting involved in politics, of course all the invectives would come out against Jane Fonda. But then if I'm going as a kid to actually help fill envelopes. Like Reagan, yeah. 
it was an anti-ERA thing, but there was this woman who was heading up this anti-ERA movement. So yeah. um, I think I, I may have referred to her as an activist back then, although I really don't think that word was in my vocabulary. But I was told, I do remember this answer, though. What she has is a ministry. Right. So so it's like, if, if you're, I guess if you're left-wing, it's an activist. If you're right-wing, yeah. it's a ministry. Yeah, the, the role of women and the way they were talked about it is super interesting because, you know, women were super important. They are, they're always have been important kind of in party politics, right, because they're the people who have a lot of time in their hands, housewives, they called them, right? And they had free offices called the kitchen table, right, and they, you know, get all the office supplies from their husband. And so that's always been a big factor. But, yeah, you do have this, you know, kind of cultural you know, ban basically within fundamentalism of women kind of entering the world and the way they kind of got around that all, all the, all the leaders, all the people who managed to change the world were women, right? You know, Anita Bryant in Florida, of course, who you remember and Phyllis Schlafly. And they're kind of these miniature versions all over the place. There was a woman named Alice Moore in West Virginia, uh, Bobby Fiedler in California. And it was always, they would always represent themselves as happily going about their lives as godly wives and um they were they basically had no choice the narratives always um involved their children telling them why aren't you you know basically putting your money where your mouth is and that's also biblical the idea of out of the out of the mouths of babes and sucklings right so everyone had a story about how their children somehow you know, kind of guilted them into this. And they always claimed to be doing it reluctantly. And they always claimed to be really housewives at heart. And the cleverness of this formulation was, it was that the liberals were so cruel, right, that they forced me to kind of um, stray outside of my appointed lane to save the world from their wickedness. Right. <laughs> yeah. That, 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 that was pretty much, uh, uh, the narrative. Um, when, when all that was happening, right, before, um, you know, before Reagan was elected, of course, Carter was the president. And I remember just like right on the edge of, after Carter was elected, uh, seeing, and of course I'm seeing this on television, not in my circle because I'm around fundamentalist Christians, but I am seeing what I, on television there appears to be an optimism that things are going to be different after coming yeah. from Nixon to Ford, and now we've yeah. got Carter, uh, you know, he's a born-again evangelical Christian, Greg Allman likes him, he's one of us, or whatever, you know, and yeah. uh, and so, but of course that, that, that didn't take. And, uh, Did your people and, like him in '76? Wasn't that? Did your people, your people in your church, your family, they they thought he was one of us, and they 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 supported him? No, no, no not, not necessarily, not necessarily. Now, I did go to Christian bookstores at the time, yeah. uh, and I would see books that did embrace Carter as one of us. Yes. So, and I do think that because of that, there were a substantial amount of Christians who did believe that Carter was one of us. Right, but my my little circle, no, my little circle was always like the um, uh, the, the the dedicated opponent, as it were. And yeah. uh, so, well, he got a lot of evangelicals, right? He got maybe like two thirds, right. and then and then in 1980, Reagan got two thirds. So that shift is a big part of the story that this book tells, and it, 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 a lot of that is kind of 
evangelicals coming into their own version of political consciousness that what it means to be an evangelical is to hold all these right-wing political positions, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, just very um, hawkish in foreign policy. You know, I have an unbelievable Jerry Falwell pamphlet that came out in 1980, and it basically prophecies that um, there's going to be a nuclear war between America and the Soviet Union. What a wonderful thing it's going to be, because afterwards Christ is going to come back in glory. And the idea that this guy could be like a mainstream figure and could be on TV and, you know, write op-eds in the Los Angeles Times, and meanwhile, he's circulating this pamphlet that's saying nuclear war is a good thing. Right. I mean, no one can tell me that the, the fundamentalists these days are crazier than the fund, fundamentalists then. But, um, you know, basically all through this period, 77, 78, 79, they're like, oh, wait, Jimmy Carter. Well, of course, there first there was this very strange thing where he gave an interview in Playboy magazine. And by the way, explained Christian theology in a really beautiful and clear way. But he also mentioned that he had sexual urges. Right. And so, like, the, the, you know, this, it was just basically the, the, the kind of sharpness with which you had to kind of, you know, um, believe in this very narrow vision of society became what it meant to be a Christian. And um, so, you know, I mean, Jimmy Carter was a very skilled politician getting elected in 1976. And part of his skill was being all things to all people. So he managed to signal to evangelicals that he was one of them and a lot of them bought it but he also managed to signal to Greg Ullman that he was one of them you know and he managed to signal to New York liberals and Jews that he was one of them and he managed to signal so I have a little shtick about that one of Gerald Ford strategist is like oh my god everyone thinks that Jimmy Carter is one of them and that kind of sets up a really fun story about what happens when a guy who is all things to all people actually has to govern the country and make decisions in which one side wins and one, the other side loses and you know he had a very complex ideology that didn't really kind of hew down any particular line, but he was very committed to the ERA, right? Mm-hmm. And he was very committed to bringing more women into government. And uh, he liked Bob Dylan and rock stars. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, lo and behold, you know, by 1980, there are people, you know, there are, you know, big evangelical ministers, not following in this particular story, but... James Robeson, you know, holding on to the White House gates and praying fervently that God will rescue America from this, you know, heathen. And then Jerry Falwell is a great story with him and where he, he, he goes to, you know, they, they start the moral majority, which was the big kind of basically the AFL CIO of Christians. And, uh, he tells this astonishing story to a chapter of the moral majority in Alaska of all places that he went to the White House, which was true. And that he asked Jimmy Carter why he was hiring so many homosexuals to work in the White House. And Jimmy Carter said, well, I believe in, you know, representing all Americans in the White House. And Jerry Falwell claimed that he had said, well, are you going to hire robbers and rapists, too? And the whole thing was on tape, and he had completely made it up. So it was completely humiliating for Jerry Jerry Falwell. But using those clever word games that they're so good at, he, he somehow managed to not really quite apologize. (laughs) <laughs> and make himself into the victim. Right. Now, your, your book's very rich in, uh, in, in 70s happenings, basically. Well, right. uh, just, just reading it. I mean, everything from Anita Bryant to, uh, yes. Eddie Hurst, that Patty Hurst is in it. And, uh, you know, lots, lots of, lots of visuals. But it's funny, when I look back at the 70s, I'm seeing, you know, 
as a kid, you know, Halloween seed books, uh, movies like A Thief yeah. in the Night and all that. Night, I, yeah. The world is coming apart. And it is. I mean, it's a great time to be an apocalyptic Christian, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not seeing that much difference, but yet in the media, I'm seeing the 70s portrayed like in the 70s, the 1950s was portrayed like oh, really? the Oh, uh, wild. And, and that's how I'm interpreting it. I, I don't know, but what kind of parallels uh, are you seeing between how things were in the 70s versus how things are right now? Well, uh, it is a really apocalyptic moment for, you know, America and the world, right? Um, um, that's a, that's, a, that's a huge question, first of all. I mean, I, you know, I mean, it's not something that you can kind of answer in a sentence or two, but, um, I, th- and there's, you know, a lot of differences. I mean, um, so, I mean, I don't know, maybe refine the question. I mean, what, what do you see? What's interesting to you? Well, um, I was just thinking about, about this the other night. I mean, I don't know. It's, uh, you know, after, as I mentioned, after we got off of Watergate and all that, things were kind right. of going bad. And of course, we're hoping, because this happens often when a Democrat is elected after a Republican screws up everything. There's a sense that we're going to kind yeah. of reset the clock. You know, this is very, I mean, you remember 2009 when Obama became president and everyone's like, Racism is over, and yeah. you know we're going to yeah. fix all these what these terrible banks are doing, and right. you know this. I mean, Carter in a lot of ways. Let's let's do that as a parallel. I mean, there's, there's this saying. I think Bill Clinton might have said it that when it comes to choosing presidential candidates, Republicans fall in line, right? They're authoritarian. Democrats fall in love, and they always love this outsider yeah. figure like Carter, like Obama, that promises cleansing, redemption, right? All things to all people. You know, um, I always kind of campaigns in this very kind of populist vein that I'm going to return government to the people. And um, then suddenly they find out that the divisions in the country are, you know, much deeper than that kind of glib idea that all it takes is one smiling guy, you know, to fix everything. I guess I look at Biden and I see almost a type of Carter. Well, I, I see Biden as, and Carter as pretty different. I mean, Biden's in the book, right, as you know, and Biden was one of these Democrats in the Carter era who really, he was a neoliberal. You know, I mean, he bragged about being the most frugal senator. He, you know, um, did a lot of fancy footwork to kind of give Democratic, fellow Democratic senators a way to vote against, you know, school desegregation. So he was kind of one of the more right-wing senators, but look, he was like, a, he's, he's been in politics now. It's going to be going on, you know, 50 years. He was first elected to the Senate in 1972. And so he really knows what he's doing. He understands the government. He understands administration. Carter was so green and so arrogant that he could kind of go in with his own guys and do his own thing and not make any connections. So in that way, they're so different. They're opposite. But, um, you know, basically the idea that a Democratic a Democrat comes in office and harvests all the shit, the shit end of the stick that the, the Republicans bequeath to them. Well, yeah, that's certainly a parallel, right? Yeah, exactly. So Biden is kind of seen as this hapless figure. I don't think he is. Um, I mean, for one thing, you know, he's in this terrible situation where there's 50 Democratic senators and, you know, two of them are practically Republican. So he's basically like absolutely stymied. But people, you know, the media doesn't say, oh, well, you know, this system is basically set up for this poor guy to fail. They say he's failing, and, and it's his fault, right? So, you know, that's the way politics works. 
But um, I think that, you know, Biden is a much cooler customer, much more resilient. Um, but I think, yeah, the situation where basically the, the Democrats, you know, basically Democrats clean up the Republicans' messes, right? So Democrats, you know, inherit these terrible deficits and they turn them into surpluses in the case of Clinton, right? And they think that because they've proven themselves to be kind of frugal and, and, and competent administrators, the Republicans won't think that they're bills above. But that's not how the right works, you know. So, I mean, yeah. I, I, I think I, I'm much more into um, processes than parallels. So there's a process involved, right? And we're kind of dealing with right now the biggest part of all the craziness we're going through is, you know, harvesting the consequences of conservative governance, you know, all the messes in the foreign policy, the, you know, the idea that America could be the world's policeman, you know, all the idea that since government is illegitimate, we can just hire hacks, you know, and businessmen and people who know nothing to run the government. And, you know, Democrats come in and they're a little too nice for their own good. And they think that the best way to kind of show that they're decent folks is to compromise and negotiate with these people who've screwed everything up. Uh, and that, you know, that's something that repeats itself over and over again. Every time a Democrat, you know, either runs for office or becomes president, they always say that they're, they're not ideological. There is no red America. There is no blue America. And every time the conservatives call them a communist. Right. You know, um, another thought that's been uh, kind of going through my head, it uh, has to do with the kind of undemocratic uh, turn of events right. that I'm doing. And you and know from the book that that started a long time ago, too. Well, yeah, because I, I'm thinking about various times in, uh, I remember my American history class, and maybe even sometimes some of the Bible classes as well, where somebody would make would make a, a statement like, well, that's not that's not how democracy works, or that's not democratic, or something like that, to which the teacher would then say, this is not a democracy. Now, as a, as, a, as a high school student listening to this, I'm thinking, okay, what what she's really saying is, oh, that's too bad that America is not a democracy. I mean, it, it would be really nice if you know everybody got right. their vote, voice in, and all that, and then it would really be great. Uh, th- that's always the attitude. I thought that line was delivered in. You know, well, this is not a democracy. Like, oh, that's too bad. Now I look back on it, and I'm wondering if there's. <laughs> I wonder if there's some kind of indoctrination at stake. I wonder if they're like, this is not a democracy and this should never be a democracy. Yeah, there's something a little bit of a sit down and shut up. You know, it is what it is. And I I do remember people uh, kind of downing the idea of mob rule. We don't want to have a mob rule, which moves by default that, okay, a minority rule would be okay. And the type, of course, every time we... (laughs) Well, the minority is the best sort anyway. Like, and, 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 oh, and this is, this was good, this was good too. I remember my American history teachers very specifically saying, and this is in the 70s, that only a white male can be elected, a white Christian can be, a, a white Christian male can be elected president of the United States. And was he saying this constitutionally or just saying like, oh, no one's gonna vote for someone who's not a white Christian? I think ultimately he was leaning toward that direction. That's my best case scenario. But I think ultimately yeah. That's, right. that's what it was leading. And well, I mean, practically speaking, that's been the kind of unwritten constitution, you know, the kind of... Right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the whole... Well, we talked about, you know, the fundamentalist aspect of the right. There's also 
you know, uh, continual, you know, impact of, you know, the John Birch Society, which was, you know, very influential and spiritual group. And one of their slogans is America is a republic, not a democracy. And, you know, I mean, there's no, you know, set in stone definition of a democracy. Countries are more or less democratic. But that was kind of their way of saying, you know, um, it's illegitimate to kind of govern in the interest of the broad majority. You have to govern in the interests of the establishment of capital of of business owners, right? Um, and you know, I mean, this is a, like a lot of things that you know are part of America's reactionary tradition. This comes out of the South, right, where um, the Republican Party was pretty much banned. We're talking about you know Abraham Lincoln's Republican Party. You know, you 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 know, you could be lynched for you know, you know, supporting the Republican Party, and the reason for that was the terror that a party that could, you know, win the allegiance of blacks in the places and times when blacks had the power to vote would be able to unite with a portion of the white population and destroy white supremacy. So, like so many things, this idea where a Republican, not a democracy, is a way of saying, you know, white people rule. And, and something that, that I have noticed about businesses, uh, uh, private businesses, and uh, this is, uh, again, I'm just taking things that I heard just out of, con- maybe out of context or just as a half, you know, a halfway measure, and I'm thinking, I wonder if there's more to the story than that is every time I would go to work at a new company, one of the first things I would hear would be, this is not a democracy. <laughs> and then I keep hearing, we need to give more government work, or we need we, we need to privatize more government right. offices. Right, we got to take more things out of the realm of the people's sovereignty. Yeah. Right, so we're, we're going to let private industry, which openly says we are not a democracy, take over Right, and unfortunately, you know, Bill Clinton was, you know, way too enthusiastic about that kind of stuff. Yeah. But Biden is, you know, that's one of the ways in which Biden, you know, is not like some of the previous Democratic presidents who kind of gave a little too, a way too much to the to the right. You know, he he's he's, he's you know kind of deprivatizing, you know, a lot of government. You know. Right. Well, you know, one other thing is that even though I hear about, uh, and I'm always reading about all these terrible things that the right wing's doing and that, you know, it costs money to win elections and all that, one thing that just keeps bugging the crap out of me is that, well, that doesn't mean that we, the average citizen, can't see through all that, and yet that happens, and it gets really frustrating. How, what advice would you have for the average citizen? What could the average citizen who really cares about, you know, the real potential of maybe the death of democracy in the United States right. be doing right now? Right. I mean, I think, you know, voting for the party that actually believes in democracy, which is the Democrats, but the Democrats often are very flawed. So get involved in democratic politics. So people with your values are, you know, have influence. Um, another thing is, you know, with all the kind of vigilantism that's going on in things like school boards, you know, and kind of county board meetings and, you know, people who are trying to, you know, basically create public health safety and are, you know, getting vilified and death threats and hounded, you know, showing up at those kinds of meetings is really important, right? Kind of, you know, making your presence felt, you know, if you live in a area that has a school board that's making it, you know, that's banning books, 
which is another parallel, by the way. You know, people were really into, you know, banning books like, you know, that was, <laughs> remember that book movie Footloose from the 80s that was kind of taken, take, you know, kind of took place in a, in a town like kind of, you know, Christian town where no one was allowed to dance and they kind of talk about, you know, banning, banning books, right? right. Um, you know, you got to show up, right? Because if, if these guys are always showing up, right? They're the first ones at the meeting and the last one's gone, you know? So if there's, you know, a hearing, you know, uh, about, you know, the social studies curriculum, right? If there's a hearing about, you know, public health mandates, you know, they're going to show up. So you got to show up. And it's not fun always, and it's grinding work, and it's incredibly frustrating, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you got to have a little resilience, you know? So, I mean, it's, it's very, it, it's very kind of, um, there can be a glibness, you know, Obama can be very glib about these things. You got to vote, you know, vote harder, you know, and that's, you know, that's obviously, you know, kind of not enough. Right. Um, but, you know, really, unfortunately, all we got is active citizenship. You know, that's all we got. Right. So what, what, the money. what, is, what is next right now? Is there going to be like, a, uh, I, I hate to say this, is there going to be a Trump, what, a Trump land? I, I, really, well, this I is so I, funny. I, Everyone asks me that. When's yeah. Trump land coming up? And I'd always say, well, you know, I did all this journalism, you know, all through the 2000s, and I wrote, I did journalism about Trump. You know, I've written about, I spent two, 2016 on the road, you know, writing about the Republican campaigns. And I'd say, go look at that, you know. But actually, now I'm actually surprising myself. I, I'm making preparations to write a book about the last 20 years. So basically... <laughs> Uh, practically speaking, although I hope they don't call it that, I am kind of working on Trump land. Well, I, I, I can't, I can't wait for the book Trump land, but I certainly hope we don't really live in Trump land. So yeah, yeah, knock on wood. It'll also be shorter. So right. Well, well, thank, thank you very much for being for being with us uh, on the Walker Down Report, uh, uh, Rick. And of course, uh, thank everybody for watching, and I'll see you next time on the Walker Town Report. Thank you for listening to the Walkertown Report. Links to any product discussed on the Walkertown Report may be found in the description. If you do not have access to the description, please visit walkertown.com for more information. Thank you for listening to the Walkertown Report.